Crime, cloning, and the memory of water. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, and boy, this week we have got quite a show, the last one of 2019. So what do you say? Let's get it started. And here we are on the final show of 2019 for Ask Science Mike. I'm so glad you're here with me in this holiday season. If you've got some time off of school or work, I hope you're enjoying it. If you work in uh, the retail sector or food service or healthcare or some other sector where uh, you're feeling left out because so many of your friends and family have time to rest and uh, you're still on the clock. I just want you to know I'm thinking of you, and uh, I understand that that would be difficult and frustrating. Uh, In January, now very soon from this episode coming out, I'll be in Buffalo, New York uh, at Trinity Church for their Fresh Voices series. That's January 11th, and then January 20th through 27th, I'll be at the First Presbyterian Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas for a week with Mike McCarg. Uh, You can get information on both of those by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on the Events tab. As always, we need your questions. You can send those in on AskScienceMike.com. And I do want to say thank you to everyone who started leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. That will help us find uh, new listeners for the program, which I actually would like to talk with you about for just a moment. Not new listeners. Uh, but this this episode and this show and um, some of my insecurity, you know, Ask Science Mike has such um, a wonderful audience. All of you listeners, you're kind, thoughtful people, uh, and you come from really different perspectives. So anytime I answer a question on the show, um, I know that I am in some way alienating or excluding a big chunk of the audience. So this is a program that both like conservative evangelicals and atheists listen to. This is a show that um, political progressives and political conservatives listen to. Uh, This is a show that um, people who love and hate Jordan Peterson listen to. And I'm not sure how we make it work, but uh, I think it's because what I love to do is simply honor the vulnerability that comes with curiosity. So when someone asks me a question, you'll notice what I'm in a rush to do is affirm and validate that person's life and experience and feelings. And I feel good and confident when I do that. Um, That feels very meaningful to me. This week, we have a lot of questions that are very heady, important, substantive questions 
many of which have ambiguous answers at best. When I have to share information with you, I prefer to relay to you the information of experts and try to leave my opinion out of it because I don't have a lot of confidence in my opinion. And it's also less alienating uh, if we talk about something with political implications, if I share with you what experts say and why and then give you some links and you go read for yourself, that's different than me sharing my opinion where if we disagree, uh, that can create this like emotional tension that you feel because I'm this trusted voice on the podcast every week. But if you're politically and theologically conservative, you know that I am not <laughs> either of those things. Um, and that's not to say I don't think that there's value in disagreement or even conflict. There is. I'm just saying it's not my wheelhouse. I I prefer to help people experience a sense of safety. Uh, you know, my entire philosophy as a public communicator and activist and educator is to have a bottom-up approach to dealing with the problems that people face. And basically, I understand that at the root of our brains, literally the root of our brains, near the brain stem, are neurological structures, brain structures, whose job is to make sure that we are safe. And if we don't feel safe, we can't have any kind of a discussion. We have to feel safer. So I try to de-escalate and make sure people feel safe. And then I make sure they feel accepted because as we move up in the brain into, you know, uh, stuff like the cingulate cortex and in the limbic system of the brain, uh, there are there are structures that deal with belonging and acceptance. So start with safety, then move to acceptance, and then we can move to problem solving. We can move to ideas. Um, and those first two are what I'm best at. It's odd I'm called Science Mike. Because I'm actually better at de-escalating and making people feel safe and making people feel like they belong than I am at digging into complex and nuanced uh, political, philosophical issues. Um, and this week we have a lot of questions that are just going to force me to give you my opinion. And I just had to say right up front that that uh, makes me uncomfortable and it brings insecurity. And as I say that, I don't want the people who picked these questions to feel a sense of shame. You should not. I'm so glad you asked challenging questions this week. I don't want the patrons who voted on these questions to feel a sense of shame or that you hurt me. You have not. I'm so excited that these are the questions you wanted to hear about. I just wanted to take a moment here on this show, the last one of the year, which I know uh, download numbers will be down a bit compared to a usual episode uh, over the holiday season. Uh, I just had to say, like, I feel uncomfortable with these questions because I care about you, and I know we come from so many different perspectives. Um, I understand some of the psychology and sociological implications between things like the anti-vax movement and homeopathic medicine. So even though I would disagree with some of the conclusions those groups make, I understand the emotional motivations that arrive at those positions. But my frustration with uh, science literacy in the world means sometimes I, I respond less graciously on those topics than other topics. And so, of course, we have a question about homeopathy this week. 
Uh, we're going to talk about the crime rate and crime this week. And that means we have to talk about policing and race. And I know a lot of my white listeners uh, get very upset when we talk about uh, the system of whiteness and white supremacy. And we talk about police brutality against black and brown people. That, that is upsetting. I think it's vital to discuss. But when I look at some of the consensus on experts around crime and policing, I found some things that I think would also be upsetting to black and brown listeners. So I'm reticent to even share it because um, I know you're listening and I, I care about you and I care about racial justice. Uh, and then we're going to talk about um, cloning and that one's going to be pretty easy. That's a, a nice wheelhouse science question for me <laughs> that shouldn't uh, should not upset anybody. And then our last question this week, is about automation and uh, the way the economy is changing. And I think that'll be less emotionally charged. But, uh, well, as you'll see, um, I don't, I either don't have a definitive answer to every question this week, or I have a definitive answer that I am concerned will upset people listening. So I just wanted to start uh, by naming that. I'm trying to get better about naming my feelings sharing my feelings opening openly so that you would also feel comfortable to do the same with me as you ask your questions, as you leave your comments. Uh, so without further ado and disclaimer and preamble, uh, let's go ahead and get to some questions. Hi, Science Mike. I have a question for you um, that's actually coming out of seeing a Disney movie. Um, it's a little embarrassing to admit that, but I took my daughter to go see Frozen 2 in the movie theater, and one of the ideas in the movie that I thought was very compelling was the idea that water remembers, or water has memory. And um, so I decided to do a little research on my own, so when I went home and started poking around in Google, I got flooded with websites that said, yes, this is absolutely true, and other sites have said absolutely not. It's pseudoscience. So I'd love to hear your opinion on whether there's any actual scientific evidence that water has memory. Thanks for your show. I love everything you're doing, and um, thanks for listening to my question. When we talk about scientific evidence, it, it, that's a more complicated thing than you might think. Science doesn't give like thumbs up, thumbs down, or this is true, this is false. Science attempts to use careful methods to ascribe a probability to something. We speak in uh, terms of statistical confidence of a given hypothesis being true or not. And that means science is complicated, even to scientists. A lot of people are trained in uh, operating and devising scientific experiments aren't statistically literate. Uh, and so they might do good science, but then they would might do you know really flawed statistical analysis on their results. That's a common problem in the sciences. So um, you know, when you ask, is there any scientific evidence that water has memory? Yes, there is scientific evidence that water has memory, but that evidence is very low quality. So there have been studies on water memory, 
Um, and those findings have not resonated with the scientific community because of methodological flaws and what is viewed by chemists especially as um, an improbable, implausible theory of a mechanism of action for water memory. When we talk about water memory, well, first of all, Frozen 2 is a great movie, and I love the water has memory uh, thing there as a storytelling element. I won't say any more um, because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but as someone who loves story and studies story, the moment they said it, I knew how the film would play out, and I thought it was an excellent, excellent um, beat to introduce in the story. Uh, but when we talk about water having memory, there's like two theories on how that happens. First of all, uh, this comes, you might remember this from the no-sodes episode recently, where the idea in homeopathic medicine, medicine is like cures like, which is not a scientific idea. And the idea that when we dilute things dramatically, um, the way we get the essence of something in water is that there's a memory, there's a there's a trace of not the actual substance, but the water itself was transformed by encountering the substance, and therefore uh, this water might be useful in treating disease and illness. Of course, studies don't back that up at all. But when we look at a couple of mechanisms of action, one is the idea of clumping, that you would have these gas bubbles inside of water that were created by encountering a given substance and that they are unique, almost a fingerprint of that substance. Uh, and of course, we know that water almost always does have gas bubbles in it, and then chemists can degas a water, and that works consistently. Uh, but these are very unstable arrangements. They are have not been shown to be unique uh, based on a, a particular substance being in water. Um, and the purer water gets, the more likely it is to, to pull in gases from the surrounding environment or dust or even plastics. Water doesn't like to be pure. <laughs> so it impurifies itself pretty readily. Um, but that then that doesn't necessarily radically alter or alter at all the behavior of that water, depending on what those impurities are. The other idea is hydrogen bonds um, change and, and get modified by encountering substances. Uh, water is a highly dynamic substance, especially in its liquid form. And um, most chemists would say that that's a pretty absurd notion, that uh, hydrogen bonds are are constantly breaking and reforming in water. And even if there was some special statistically significant arrangement of hydrogen bonds in water as the result of contacting something, those bonds would immediately be reformed on contacting something like a human mouth or especially a human stomach. Those are very hostile environments for water. Um, so, I mean, uh, I don't mean to laugh. There's not, there's just not a lot of notion that supports the idea that water has memory in a homeopathic sense. There's also, in an earlier episode of Ask Science Mike, uh, quite some time ago, there was a scientist who, you know, uh, claim that like singing to water uh, had an effect on that water. And, and we, we went through it and, and kind of debunked that as well. Um, here's why I'm really interested in this question. You, 
you Googled the answer. And I've one of the critiques I've gotten from people about my show is that uh, I just Google things for people. <laughs> um, and this also comes into uh, public policy and advocacy work where um, when you learn about something new, be that homeopathic medicine or white supremacy or something else, yes, we all turn to Google. And then Google, this machine mind, uh, just gives us a bunch of articles that have been selected by algorithm. And there's a whole industry of people who tune their articles to be favorable to Google search algorithms. And if you click through on most topics, the first couple of pages on Google, you're going to be more confused than before you Googled something, exactly what happened with you. You looked up, does water have memory? And there were a bunch of articles that said yes, and a bunch of articles that said no. And they both had lots of rationale and explanation to support their position. And this is such a complicated thing in our society, isn't it? Because if you're me and you talk about science all the time, let's say I wasn't a science educator, but I was a scientist. And sometimes I shared scientific findings on Twitter. And then people would tweet me when they realized I did that and ask me to rule on different questions they had to point them in the right direction. That, that would be exhausting, wouldn't it? Now, I do that as my job. <laughs> but sometimes it is exhausting for me because people will ask me the same questions over and over and over. And I'm like, why can't they just look it up? Well, we've created an environment where media literacy is, is very difficult. There's never been more media available. And it's very hard to discern what media is trustworthy and what isn't. And uh, we've got a widely and deeping polarization in global culture and global society, especially in the West. You look at the, the outcome of the most recent uh, election in the UK, or you look at the impeachment process in the United States you would see that these kind of identity mythic narratives are shaping the way we consume media. And we tend to want to read media that meets our lower brain needs of safety and belonging. I think that's what's happening. But when people have a genuine curiosity and they realize they might be falling into some mythology, I absolutely believe homeopathy in the anti-vax movement, is a coping mythology. When people try to examine that, and they ask Google, they get a lot of media they can't discern between. So I do take great pride and joy in studying media literacy, learning to be media literate myself, and then using media literacy skills to help my listeners first hear where I went with my research and then get a glimpse into how I did that research to increase their own media literacy. But I would just like to say to all of us that these same patterns are in play when we talk about racism, for example. It's, it's a common arc I've seen for white men like myself to uh, start studying white supremacy and to be appalled at what they see. And to realize, oh my gosh, we have a giant system that I'm a part of that oppresses people of color. Oh no. And then they began to, or they begin to 
share these thoughts publicly and in some way have an unsophisticated or rudimentary or even problematic analysis. Um, and then someone corrects them, maybe even harshly, and that hurts their feelings. And so they begin to ask questions, but because the people impacted by these systems are, if they're active online, they're constantly bombarded by people asking questions that could be found on Google. They get tired, they rebuff the people, and then ultimately because these decision-making processes we have in our lives are driven by our emotional brains and not our thinking brains, that sense of rejection makes them look for safety and belonging. And then I think that's how you get, um, what is that they call it? Classic liberal white men who say, well, you know, I think the conservatives, they're all bonkers and they're crazy, but the left has just gone too far and they're reclaiming language. And so now here I am with the good rational people who stand for free speech above all. This was a big thing I thought about a lot during my faith transition as well. I realized that Christians and atheists were largely using fancy intellectual language to hide the emotional motivations for their belief systems. Don't hear me wrong. I am not criticizing the fact that our feelings play a core role in what we believe. I think that's good and important and necessary. I think the problem is that we too often deny that those factors are in play and pretend that we're all having rational discussions. And that brings us back to the memory of water. These Google results are overwhelming because media literacy requires some difficult work to not only understand how to critique media, but to have an awareness of your philosophical positions and your epistemological positions. When I weigh in the way that I just did, I prioritize some sources as better than others because I thought their way of using knowledge was better. I leaned in with the consensus of the scientific community and excluded some of the natural medicine and uh, what I would call pseudoscience communities. And in doing so, there's a grief for me because those people can then interpret my leaning on what I see as a better way of finding factual information as a rejection of their feelings and the ways that they feel safe and feel belonging. And that's, the, that's why this question of water memory is so important. It's so evocative of the precise point we find our global culture in today with an internet that can tell us everything but gives us no capacity to weigh what is more or less factually accurate. And those forces are simultaneously empowering people in wonderful ways. I love the way that um, someone who's who's queer and in the closet can find queer communities online and share. Wow, that's great. I love the way that uh, people of color can collect and organize and find solidarity, solidarity online. Wow, that's wonderful. And I lament the way that these algorithmic-driven information presentation systems 
encourage us to go into our own philosophical, epistemological comfort bubbles um, where we are no longer able to agree on a common consensus for what reality is at all. Which is to say, no, I do not believe that water has memory, but I understand the motivations of those people who say that it does. I'm so careful in choosing sponsors for Ask Science Mike because I want um, I want to keep doing the show and I want you to feel uh, like, like I've earned your trust. And I love that BetterHelp is one of the sponsors of this program because I think mental health is so important. If you don't know BetterHelp, they are an online mental health counseling service. Uh, they are wonderful. And um, I use this service myself in my pursuit of mental health and stability. Uh, what they do is they let you use a website or an app on your computer or your mobile device to talk to licensed therapists, over 3,000 in all 50 states, by the way, uh, over chat or text or phone or video. And it's super convenient and super affordable and super easy. I've told you before that uh, sometimes it's hard for me to drive to the therapist's office in Los Angeles traffic. And also finding a therapist is an overwhelming process. And BetterHelp is very simple. You go in, you fill out a secure, convenient uh, questionnaire, and they will match you with a therapist you like. And if you don't like the therapist you're matched with, you can request another one at any time, and they will find you a new therapist. There's so many uh, specializations available in anxiety, family conflicts, uh, anger, depression, sleep issues, trauma, relationships, grief, grief, self-esteem, LGBTQ matters. All of these things have specialists assigned to them. And I know that for issues I'm working through right now, I was amazed at how BetterHelp was able to zero in on a professional who was uniquely able to help me in that situation. So if you'd like to join me in pursuing better health, just go to betterhelp.com slash science mike, where you can get a 10% discount off your first month. And don't forget that this service is affordable and available on a sliding scale for people with low or restricted incomes. To learn more and to get started today, just go to betterhelp.com slash science mic. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hi, Science Mike. I've been hearing a lot in the news about lawmakers increasing sentences for various crimes. It is my understanding that punishment has never been shown to be a deterrent for committing crimes. Why then don't we look to solutions that might actually reduce crime? What has been shown to reduce crime? Have other countries done this effectively? I'm wondering specifically if reducing poverty will also reduce crime. Full disclosure, my husband is a police officer, so these conversations can get interesting in our house. Winky face. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Carrie. Uh, Carrie, um, I just want to let you know that uh, my dad's a police officer, was a police officer before he retired. And so these are conversations that I'm uh, well acquainted with having. Uh, so many of the adults in my life as a child were police officers and members of the law enforcement community. Um, 
before I answer the question, I'd like to kind of look at uh, some of the subtext of your first paragraph where you said, I've been hearing in the news about increasing sentences, but you understand that punishment hasn't really been shown to be a deterrent for committing crimes. There's an interesting sociological phenomena that we find um, different approaches to policy between um, conservative people and progressive people uh, that appear to be related to brain function. Here's what I mean. On the surface, it actually makes sense that increasing the penalty or the punishment for a given crime would act as a deterrent to do a crime. That seems logical. It seems like a trustworthy idea. And what we find is in the political and policy motivations of conservatives is they tend to um, be very compelled by something that makes sense. Progressives, on the other hand, <laughs> don't care if it makes sense. They care if it works. Uh so if something really unexpected is found, like um, giving people free ice cream sandwiches lowered addiction rates, progressives might not even want a study to say why. If we have a study to say that it does, they'd say, great, let, let's start putting ice cream sandwiches in the budget. Do you see what I mean? There's fundamentally different policy motivations, but we have to remember that police policy and policing policy isn't decided by some academic board somewhere. Uh, these things happen through elections and through uh, advocacy. Uh, it's As being public policy, it is very complex. So just because you're right, increasing the punishment for most crimes doesn't actually affect the crime rate at all. It doesn't actually change public policy. Because public opinion and polling and elections play a big role, right? So that's a big deal. I don't want to gloss over that as we get into the question. And then I just want to say, gosh, I am so afraid to answer this question. Here's why. You talk about conflicting information. Uh, when we talk about water memory, there's not like a scientific debate about whether water has memory. But when we talk about what lowers crime, there actually is significant differences among experts who've done serious research on what strategies best mitigate crime. And we also then, um, if we only look at lowering crime, that's we're fragmenting society. Crime doesn't exist in a vacuum. So there are ways that we could probably demonstrate in research that would lower crime, but they would do so at the cost of great human misery and suffering. So we can't just say, how do we lower the crime rate? We have to say, how do we reduce crimes in ways that maximize human flourishing, right? I think that's an important context. And that means for me to answer this question, I have to have read all these things which I have, and then offer you my opinion. And boy, do I hate doing that. So I just want to say right now that what we're what you're about to hear is like 
my interpretation of expert findings with an understanding that I am disregarding things that might look like they work, but do so by basically oppressing violently uh, marginalized groups of people. Poor people, people of color, native people. Not okay with that. Um, and so you also might understand that sometimes you can have a, what is I would consider quick fix strategy that can make a short-term impact on the crime rate, but does so in a way that actually sows the seeds for great inequality and difficulty in the future and potentially a higher crime rate. Uh, so what do we know works in America and around the world? Well, first, kind of fascinating, the crime rate is already plummeting across the United States and much of the world right now and has been doing so for some time. That's not a new development. Uh, experts are very torn on why it's happening, but we know that it is happening. We absolutely have crime rates rising in some locations. Uh, but overall, crime rates are going down, and even in locations where the crime rate is going up, it's lower than it was in, say, the 1980s or early 90s. Fascinating. We also want to say that climate change could reverse that, that the impact on basic material security and safety from the changing climate and food security and housing security, that could certainly reverse this trend and do so definitively. So as I look through the research with those things aside, that the crime rate's already lowering and that climate change could cause it to rise again and maybe be higher than it has been in some time or perhaps in recorded history, what do we see that consistently lowers crime and in fact may already be lowering crime rates in communities? Number one is improving Access to education. People who spend more time in the education system are less likely to commit crime. And there's, we can't talk about crime without talking about racism. The justice system is a significant, maybe even primary force in um, maintaining systems of white supremacy. But what's fascinating about the education metric is this is true across all racial groups. White people who have lower education rates or have been through less education are more likely to be arrested, to be prosecuted, and to be incarcerated. Now, some of this isn't fair because crime doesn't simply come out of poverty uh, White-collar crime is real. There are crimes of greed that happen in wealthy communities. And uh, those people are less likely to be prosecuted and less likely to be convicted and less likely to be incarcerated because they can afford legal counsel. So it's not just a matter of education. There, crime still happens among people who are wealthy and educated, um, but they're more likely to get away with it. I guess under some argument that like they didn't mug somebody. They just uh they just wiped out the retirement of a half million people. Uh oh gosh, boy, my opinion really came through there. I, <laughs> so, I actually I'm not even sorry. White collar crime and, and the greed uh associated with that is very, very frustrating to me. 
But in general, improving access to education makes people less likely to commit crime. Which means, like, in a, in a strange way, to some political ideologies, investing in education is a good investment because it will lower costs otherwhere, in other places. Fascinating. Improving access to economic opportunity lowers the crime rate. As unemployment goes down, crime goes down. Um, working people have less time to make crime. Especially you've got to consider uh, a, a high propensity for crime group is uh, young people, teenagers. Bored teens get up to mischief. And this could be as simple as them having... They're, they're too busy working and too tired when they're not to um, engage in crime-based activities. So economic opportunity across racial groups, across ages, across ec- education levels, lowers the crime rate in the data. And access to basic necessities, food, shelter, clothing, um, lowers the crime rate. So those three things, education, uh, economic opportunity, what I would call social safety, all lower the crime rate much more effectively than increasing penalties or increasing incarceration rates. In fact, America has this incredibly high incarceration rate, globally unique, and research is telling us that that does not play a significant role in Reducing crime. It's just very expensive and traumatic for our society. Uh, High incarceration rates and high penalties aren't helping. And neither do stop and frisk or uh, broken windows policies, where stop and frisk basically means stop anyone who looks suspicious. This almost overwhelmingly ends up being people of color and poor people who are stopped and frisked by the police. And then they go to prison for, you know, having less marijuana on them than a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old in an affluent neighborhood. And broken windows is basically um, drowning people in the minutia of ordinance and regulation. So literally, uh, I see your windows broken, city ordinance 701-3 says windows have to be repaired, uh, and that gives us reason to search your premises. Or we're going to write you a ticket for this. Meaning, the theory being, uh, well, if if you know we're coming after you for the small stuff, you know we're watching, and we're going to get you for the big stuff. And uh, it's it's been really broadly demonstrated in the research that neither of those things, stop and frisk or broken windows policing, works. But there is one type of policing that is shown to be very effective. And that's what is called hotspot policing. Uh, when you look at crime rates, they tend to be very low everywhere. Uh, if you look city by city or region by region, but if you start looking street by street, the crime rate can go from, you know, say the violent crime risk is is five or 10 per 100,000. Well, you get in a hotspot, a difficult street, and it can be, 300 or 3,000 in 100,000, your risk of violent crime or injury and violent crime. Uh, And that's dangerous. And so uh, what has been shown is to have police focus 
with an intentional pragmatic strategy in those hotspots that addresses the specific crimes in question. And it's different every time. There is no like universal solution because hotspots are all unique. They all represent some type of systemic disenfranchisement of a group of people. Um, and that can be unforeseen consequences of public policy. So, for example, if you look at gentrification, a neighborhood starts getting gentrified and then a housing project gets torn down. But it's okay. We built another one four blocks away. But now before where you had a couple of gangs who had set up established boundaries, now you just moved one gang in one area to the center of another gang's territory. And now you have an extended period of conflict in search of a new equilibrium. And the crime rate explodes in a way that maybe the developers and policy people who made those decisions uh, did not foresee. It also means we should be careful about forcefully relocating people. Uh, maybe not do it at all for that matter. Uh, but that's my point. But if you took the policy learnings from that and applied it to a different hotspot where there's a different situation, it won't work. So hotspot policing is about police forces uh, getting in touch with and learning and connecting with a community and partnering with that community to address the crime that is victimizing all the residents. Uh, it seems to be most effective when police work in conjunction with citizenry and don't move in as like a conquering force into an area. And it means it takes a lot of effort and time to test and devise and work on strategies that work for one specific neighborhood. But that is one way that policing does seem to lower crime. Finally, booze. Make booze harder to get. Alcohol consumption uh, is highly correlated and, and causal, in fact, with some forms of violent crime. And so you want to make booze harder to get, make it served in fewer locations, put more taxing on it, make it more expensive. But don't don't do this via prohibition because then you just get a thriving uh, uh, black market. You get a, an underground market handling uh, distribution in ways that are even less savory than the prior legal one. Uh, so some studies have shown that just fewer liquor licenses and a higher tax on alcohol can also impact the climate the climate, the crime rate. That's a lot, isn't it? That is a lot. So lowering crime, improve access to education, economic opportunity, and the necessities of life. Focus on hotspots with pragmatic, localized solutions. They make alcohol harder to get, but not via prohibition. Um, I hope that's helpful and uh, that nobody had an aneurysm as I went through my opinion on lowering the crime rate. Hi, Science Mike. I had a dream last night, and you were in it. Uh, you were a member of a team who, backed by some wealthy investors, were in the process of building a theme park on an island to showcase some clones of real-life dinosaurs. In the dream... You were giving a tour of the park to myself and some others, showing us areas where the dinosaurs would be kept. You were explaining that even though some of the park had already been built, your team hadn't actually cloned any dinosaurs yet. The scientists were still trying, unsuccessfully, to blend frog DNA with that of a rhino. And when I woke up, I realized that my dream was largely a ripoff of Michael Crichton. 
But it got me thinking, could the science of Jurassic Park be used to help recover endangered species, like the rhino, or even those recently extinct if we were to preserve their DNA? That's my question for you. Anyway, I want to take a moment to say thank you, though, um, for your work in this podcast and in the liturgists. I work at a large evangelical church in the Northwest, and I tend to lean more right of center in my views, and I'm often challenged by what you have to say. I've even considered unsubscribing on several occasions, but I continue to listen to every episode because I recognize the heart of Christ in you and your care for the broken and marginalized. You bring the voices and stories of people to the foreground when all the debate often threatens to crowd them out and reduce them to issues. I don't always agree with everything that's said on these podcasts, but they have become an invaluable voice in my life. Hearing your heart helps mine to become more compassionate, and I feel myself growing closer to Jesus through it. So thank you. Well, first, I would just like to thank you for your kind words and encouragement. That means so much to me. And then on the cloning thing, you know, this is something I hear uh, often. This is this is something people bring up quite frequently in casual conversation with me. Um, it won't surprise you that when I'm at social engagements, people tend to ask me science questions, uh, including people who uh, haven't known me before that moment. Um, but it, I don't know. It's a fascinating uh, cycle of my life. But yeah, this comes up a lot. So if 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 mass species die off is a problem, wouldn't one strategy be to preserve as much DNA of that species as possible and then supplement wild populations with cloned animals? Or if animals go extinct, bring them back using cloning. And this makes great sense on the surface. And as we start to dig down, we run into a few issues. Uh, here they are. Number one, Animals are better at making animals than we are. It takes a lot of embryos to make one viable animal uh, using cloning. Cloning isn't like a, a home run process. It's actually a very small number of cloned embryos are viable. Um, and that means it is an expensive, difficult process to clone even one animal. Um, and then sometimes those animals can have, um, long-term health or quality of life issues, uh, that we don't predict. So it's a lot cheaper to just have animals reproduce themselves through mating and reproduction than it is to clone them. But even if that were not the case, the other problem is animals are going extinct for a reason or reasons, typically habitat loss, um, hunting, dangerous interactions with humanity or human livestock, right? Uh, or climate change causing a destruction to their habitat or food chain, which means if you have an animal uh, or a species that's under incredible pressure from those factors, Adding cloned animals, they will die of the same habitat loss, the same hunting, the same climate change-driven issues, unless you address the factors that cause the animal population to decline or go extinct in the first place. Your carefully cloned animals will also die, and then you'll have re-extinction, which would be tragic. 
Um, so it means we we shouldn't even consider cloning. And cloning can play an important role as numbers of a given species decline to the point where there's not genetic variability enough to sustain a population at that point using archived clone DNA could be just the um, boost a species needs to survive and be viable. But before that happens, we've got to work on the macro issues that are causing the species decline in the first place. And we know how to do this, by the way. When humanity pays attention and works hard, we have brought animals back from the very brink of extinction and seen their numbers grow and thrive. The bald eagle being a classic example. Uh, a buffalo being another. Uh, gray wolves in the West. We can do it. When we do it, people get mad. Uh, people get mad they can't develop something on their own land because of some bird's nest. And that this is... This is the difficulty of uh, naturalism and protecting species is uh, people don't want their individual life inconvenienced anyway just so that a species can survive, meaning just so that we can have a functioning ecosystem that we all live in. Uh, but cloning is one small minor tool in a much larger, more difficult, and more important tool set of species preservation that means we have to preserve habitats. We have to create regulation that limits humans' ability to um, drive out, kill, prey upon, hunt, consume endangered and threatened animals. Um, and that's hard. But without that, our uh, our our theoretical Jurassic Park of extincted animals extinct. Extinct animals, de-extinct animals, unextinct, brought back from extinction animals, would be just that, a zoo, where the only examples of that species in the world were in that zoo, and we just kept cloning from our stock to keep some tiny symbol of what the natural world once was. And that sounds very sad to me, um, and that's why I'm so active and support the work of naturalists. Uh, in protecting species before they go and before cloning is necessary to save them. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Terry. I used to be a PhD student in electrical engineering with a focus on machine learning. I'm really concerned about what automation is doing to our economy and how people are losing their jobs, and are being replaced with algorithms. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this and what some of the economics research um, says about it. I know automation can lead to some really good things like better safety, maybe more efficiency. And I think that's a great reason to do it. But I'm curious about what people are thinking about in terms of how are we going to automate things while still um, keeping a humanist mindset and helping people keep jobs and be employed without necessarily having to go to college? That's expensive. And also just how are we not going to create a div more divides between people using technology? Um, I'm really thankful for all that you do. You've helped me 
a lot. And yeah, let me know your thoughts. Thanks. If I've learned anything in my life, it's that predicting the future is hard. (laughs) Uh, You know, when I was a very young person, I loved computers and digital technology. Um, I I was programming computers when I was in grade school, early grade school taking them apart, learning all about them. And I could look at the progression of computer technology every year and and see a possible future. I could imagine computers small enough that we could carry around in our pockets. That was very exciting to me. And I could imagine that uh, the kind of modems that we use to let computers talk to each other Back then, it was these crazy sounds uh, for computers to talk to each other on the phone. But, um, you know, you begin to imagine that, uh, well, gosh, we've got cell phones now. I bet computers could talk to each other wirelessly. So I imagined at some point there would be a computer in your pocket that could make phone calls and could call other computers. And you could even like, have a chat session, text chat with someone else with a, a pocket computer. Um, and that would sound really prescient if I had written all that down back then. People, I'd, I'd be an amazing prognosticator. But that doesn't mean I ever imagined we would have like machine learning powered apps with a global IP network called the internet. I just would have never imagined. At the same time, I imagined by now computers would be conversant in speech and probably sentient. Um, I was sure that by the time I was 40, uh, the world's first androids would be walking around. And I mean, I, I don't mean on a technicality. We do have humanoid robots that can walk now. I meant like sentient machines who were a part of human society. I would have thought we had that by now. So if you look at what I thought about the future in the past, I tended to either be too cautious and conservative in where I thought things would go or wildly overestimate the progress of technology. And I think that is a really consistent pattern for humanity since the Industrial Revolution and especially In the information age, even experts are overwhelmed by the complexity of these systems. If there's anything I know from a career of developing software before I was an author and a podcaster, my main work was building digital systems and overseeing and participating in software projects. It is so hard to estimate how long and how much money it will take to make even one software product in an existing category. And when you take something new that hasn't been done before, like a car that can drive itself, um, you tend to be either wildly over-optimistic or too pessimistic in your estimates. And I think that's where we are right now. I don't think self-driving cars are as close as I would have said two or three years ago. Because as we're entering the edge cases at the end of a significant technological development, 
we're finding that there are many more factors to consider than we ever imagined before. And I think so it is with widespread automation. We do know that automation has already taken jobs. And funny enough, taking jobs in our economy is sometimes described as increases in efficiency. Because of the way, as my dog flapping her ears, I'm sorry if that's <laughs> if that's distracting to anyone. Uh, this is my third attempt recording this answer, and I've decided we're just going to have to deal with the flapping ear. She does not care that I'm recording. And why should she? She is having a wonderful day. It's sunny in Los Angeles, and she can see the birds. Uh, so uh, when we look at you know trends, we're optimistic, we're pessimistic, and we see that... Uh, Jobs have been lost, and we call that increased efficiency. If you look at the way our economy is structured, there's actually great incentive in the structures of how we build companies uh, to get rid of jobs. Companies have a mandate to drive profits as high as they can to, quote, return shareholder value, unquote. And that means doing the most work with the fewest number of people is the best for your books, is the best for your stock price. And so we see automation used in ways that are predatory towards people. That is not inevitable. So one, I think maybe our our obsession with efficiency makes sense on a company by company level, but has a negative effect on the overall economy and quality of life. That's why corporate profits are soaring and wages are stagnant, or at least that's a reason. And that might be good for the companies themselves, but it's not good for society overall. And if things aren't good for society overall, eventually they also won't be good for the companies. We have a very myopic and short-term focus in our economy right now, and automation plays one piece, one part of that larger movement. I know, I see. That's Ruby. She's, She's one of my best friends. Is your ears itching? Huh? Okay. Uh, So, will automation kill the economy by destroying jobs? Maybe. (laughs) Um, But let's look at one, because this is so big and so complex, let's look at one type of job to see how this might play out. One of the most common jobs in America is driving. Driving trucks or driving vehicles that transport people, whether that's mass transit or things like taxis and Uber and Lyft, it's one of the biggest jobs in America, one of the most commonly held jobs. And when you look at truck drivers, very few truck drivers just drive trucks. I'll say that again. Very few truck drivers just drive trucks. If you're driving a moving truck, you haven't, there's not that much value in just moving someone's possessions if you do not unload them from the truck and bring them into a residence. That's where the value of a moving truck happens. If you're driving a bread truck, well, the people who drive bread trucks don't just drive the trucks, they put the bread on pallets, and they bring it into the store, and they arrange the shelves. So often when you're pulling uh, bread off of a shelf, 
it wasn't a store employee who put it there. It was a truck driver that worked for the bread company. And so we may be near, maybe, I don't know, by the way, we may be near an age when semi-trucks or delivery trucks could be self-driving, but it doesn't handle the rest of their job. So if you automated a bread truck, you would still need either the grocery store or the bread company to have someone who does that important work of putting the bread on the shelves in a way that's attractive to customers. Do you see what I mean? Um, so it could be every job lost by uh, automated trucks is offset by increased retail staff to handle the distribution of the products coming off of those trucks as well as the people who build and maintain the trucks themselves. Maybe. Maybe. Whereas it's less clear with like taxis and Uber and Lyft, you probably could just get in an unattended vehicle and get to your destination. And now, yes, we're talking about a clear job loss. So in the absence of a definitive answer, which I do not believe there is one, I don't think anyone can definitively answer how deep and how fast uh, jobs will be lost due to automation. It means we should be aware of the possibility, the degree to which it has already happened, and I think it would be helpful if we took a more, a more holistic look at our economy. And we're too obsessed with individual companies, quarterly results, and stock prices in this country and I think we should look at other macroeconomic indicators as signs of success. It's not just the unemployment rate, but the right employment rate. Uh, it's, the, it's the wage growth, not just employment. Um, you know, I saw a graphic this week that I haven't yet verified or vetted that showed how over the last three decades, um, payroll taxes have risen to offset the loss in corporate taxes. Corporate taxes have gone way, way down. So even as wages have been stagnant, one of the reasons is individuals are paying more and more taxes, companies paying less and less. And that's because companies are doing what they would do, should do in the ways that they're structured and incentivized. And I'm saying perhaps the problem is the structure of the incentives themselves and not automation. Uh, that if we change the incentives, of the way structure, uh, companies are structured and the economy is structured, then people will be less likely to deploy automation in ways that is predatory across the larger workforce and larger economy. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I'd be really interested to hear what people think about this one. So uh, send me a tweet. I'd love to hear your thoughts on automation and job loss. It's been a while since the old four-question uh, traditional Ask Science Mike format has gone over an hour, but these were tough questions this week. Thanks for sticking it out uh, if you made it all the way to the end. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for editing and sound design, Caitlin Hermstad for being the producer of Ask Science Mike, Andrew Galecki for pre-production, Jeb Bodiford for writing, recording, performing the Ask Science Mike theme song, my patrons on Patreon for making the show possible, Victory Palmazano for production support, uh, Brent Cradle for Management Services, and you, the listener. Thanks for being here, and I can't wait to talk with you next week. Bye.